0: Welcome to Constitutional uh, Futures, a podcast series from Queen's University Belfast, examining debates around potential constitutional change on uh, this island and these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from School of Law at Queen's. I'm pleased to be joined today by Professor O'Ron Doyle. O'Ron Doyle is Professor in Law at Trinity College Dublin. He also holds a dual appointment as a research professor at the Academia Sinica in Taipei. Professor Doyle is an expert in comparative constitutional law with a particular focus on the issues of constitutional amendment, territory and Irish unification, and has been central to a range of major research projects in these areas, including in recent years, such as the UCL Working Group on Unification. He's the author of The Irish Constitution Contextual Analysis and with Tom Hickey, Constitutional Law, Text, Cases and Materials. He co-edited with Eileen Maharg and Joe Merkins, The Brexit Challenge for Ireland and the United Kingdom, Constitutions Under Pressure. He's recently published in Global Constitutionalism, the International Journal of Constitutional Law, the European Constitutional Law Review and the German Law Journal. Now, I could spend the rest of this podcast uh, outlining uh, has many contributions to these debates, but there's more than enough there to know that Oren Doyle is very well placed to reflect on these questions today. So I'm absolutely des- delighted to have the opportunity to discuss with you. And thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the overly kind introduction. I'll, I'll do my best yeah, to live, to live up no to us. No problem at all. Delighted, uh, delighted that you're here. I'm going to move on now to the, the questions. Um Rarely a week goes by without a new initiative, uh, publication or common piece on the constitutional future of Ireland. It, it's absolutely uh, everywhere at the moment, this discussion. I just wonder what, what you feel explains this level of practical interest. Why are we hearing so much about this discussion at present?
1: Um, well, I think the, the, the obvious answer, I suppose, is Brexit, which has fundamentally changed people's calculus as to how likely Irish unification is. I think prior to 2016, people would have been interested in the topic, but it didn't seem a likely eventuality. Um, But Brexit has obviously shifted that calculus quite a bit, has probably changed some people's attitudes as to how they might vote if a unification referendum was going to happen. And then I think things sort of build on itself. If more people are talking about it, then more people hear about it. Perhaps more people become interested about it and then more people start to talk about it. So I think it, that sort of phenomenon is at
0: play as well. Yeah, so Brexit, 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 big factor here. And you know, one of the, um, the constant themes in the debate now, and you hear it almost everywhere, is this the phraseology around planning and preparing. For constitutional futures. It's become a dominant theme in the debate. And I suppose that, that framing is interesting in itself. Uh, but do you think enough's been done? A lot of talk of planning and prep preparing, but, but is enough being done at present, do you think?
1: Um, so I think you know, you, first you referred to the framing, and that probably is partly a Brexit consequence as well in that i think it's relatively uncontroversial to say that brexit wasn't planned or prepared for and the consequences of that um have been have been evident um is, is enough being done i think my sense is that at the moment for the point of time we're at enough is being done but the rate of doing things needs will need to increase so if we sort of just continued doing what we are doing at the moment I think we could quite likely find ourselves facing unification referendums without enough having been done. Um, but I think it's a question really of getting more people interested in the debate. Um, quite a lot of academic work is being done. Um, that's not the be all and end all. It's uh, no, You've Uh, spoken about this quite a bit this is not something uh, whichever side of the debate you're on this is not something which is within the domain just of academics but academics are often good people to start talking about things and doing research and it's easier for them than governments sometimes so it's quite a lot of good academic work being done a few years ago you'd be at law conferences and people would say oh look nobody's given serious thought to these questions you can't say that now. It's not right to say that serious thought has not been given to these questions. Um, and I think that's starting to spill out into political discussion as well, so that some refinement of options is taking place. Um, if there's a discussion about how unification referendums might be held or should be held, it's not like everybody agrees what the process should be, but it's sort of narrowed down to like, there's more or less two or three different ways of doing it and that is helping debate and I think some of the um, there's less and less um, ideas being mentioned that are clearly ideas that aren't going to happen for instance uh, so we might talk a little bit later about yeah. models yeah. of governance on the island of ireland or whatever if unification took place and i think there's probably you know a bit more realism about what the range of options is likely going to be so i think there's sort of a narrowing down of that but it does need to get out into public debate more and then there does need to be a lot more work done i think but um, this is just on the basis of people should be able to make make well-informed decisions, uh, but particularly around uh, things like health service, education system and so on on both parts of the island. And that's just really starting to take place. Um, so I think there needs to be, there do, so there does need to be a lot more done and the rate of doing things needs will need to be stepped up, I think. Uh, but for where we are, it's not
0: too bad. And that Brexit theme again seems to be, you know, shaping a lot of that thinking that, that almost nobody, it's a reverse of the Brexit referendum process here. People want to, to value the expertise that comes in a sense with, you know, engaging with universities and experts who work in these areas. Um, you know that, as you, you know better than anyone, the current Irish government uh, and many others actually using the framing of a, of a shared island and... Which suggests that people are thinking about the language that they use in the debates beyond the legal architecture and framing. I just wonder what what you feel and think about that framework and that language for thinking about relationships on the island now and in the future. Um, I think I think it's quite helpful actually. Um, in that I think it provides
1: uh, it's non. it's non-prescriptive as to outcomes and it provides a way for people to start talking about the future um who otherwise might not want to be maybe makes the future less threatening um and there's you know there's projects undertaken under shared island um, heading that are very practical oriented and that just, just make a lot of sense, no matter what your perspective on constitutional futures is. Um, but it also does provide a bit of official space for thinking about unification as a possible future um, that uh, might otherwise be. Uh, even now, a bit more difficult to do, if that makes sense. So I think it opens up space for a range of conversations and maybe makes what would to some people be quite threatening conversations perhaps rightly seem less threatening because they're part of a more open ended consideration of the future. Not everybody's going to get on board with it, and
0: I understand some of the objections to it. So I think it's, I think it's decent enough. Yeah, it, it does. It's a that's a it's a fascinating point, isn't it? You know, in terms of tr- trying to cre- almost create a new linguistic or different linguistic frameworks for for having these conversations. I suppose in terms of the shared island work that's ongoing now and the initiatives that, that have been launched and have been happening, you know, what what's your sense of those initiatives? Are they facing into, are they doing the sort of preparatory Work that's needed? Could more be done? Is enough being done? What's your sense of that? Yeah,
1: I think if we if the question, sort of merging this with the earlier question about yeah. is enough being done in terms of preparing for um, a united Ireland um, as an option at a referendum, um, so um, probably not enough is being done under the shared island heading, and that ultimately the shared island heading may not properly accommodate the work that needs to be done that may need to become more government directed and focused whereas at the moment it's usually happening at one remove from the government whether through academics putting in research bids and getting bits of funding or the like the NESC and uh, the various bodies in the south that are doing research on behalf of the government. Um, so I think at some point, so Brendan O'Leary, one of his the suggestions in his book is a ministry for unification, basically. Um, and I think if we get closer to a unification referendum, that is the sort of thing that would be required. Um, only sort of the fully focused attention of a government department um, would work. Um, but I think at the moment, given where we are, the, the shared islands framework is, is working well enough,
0: but I don't, I don't think it would bring us all the way up to a unification referendum. Okay. Um, just moving on now to the, the framing of the discussion, which in a sense links into to that conversation as well. It, it's almost become you know, a core component of the conversations that the Good Friday Agreement is shaping all this, um, it's a key recommendation of many of the much of the work that's already been done and that's entirely understandable you know the agreements uh, a reference point but it was one of the fascinating things about the agreement both as a multi-party political agreement and uh, in its british-irish agreement international legal framework is that not everyone agrees in, in terms of what it actually requires you know which of course constitutional lawyers are not unfamiliar <laughs> with the implications of that so, I suppose just to, to tease out that discussion about what, what does it mean when people say these deliberations are grounded in the Good Friday Agreement, what is it precisely that they mean? Um, well, I suppose,
1: yeah, there is a, a range of disagreement, obviously, about some of the implications of the agreement. Um, but I think there's no disagreement about the two sides of the fundamental constitutional compromise that it made, which is that for as long as a majority in Northern Ireland wish to remain part of the Union, Northern Ireland remains part of the Union. And I think pretty much everybody accepts that in a way which wouldn't have been the case before 1998. But conversely, um, if a majority on um, in Northern Ireland and the majority um, in the South want a united Ireland, then that has to happen. And the two governments are bound to give effect to that. So I think, in a sense, saying that the discussion is grounded in the Good Friday Agreement is true and sort of uncontestable and universally agreed in relation to those core commitments, which are easy to lose sight of. So occasionally so I have this job in Taiwan and when I explain to people even today I mentioned I was doing this podcast and they said well so tell us what the situation is in relation to Ireland, Ireland and Northern Ireland what's going on there um, and I get to the point of you know the 1998 agreement and that the UK accepts that Northern Ireland uh, can leave and um, to people outside that seems really strange uh, that a state would agree in advance that a component part of that state could leave now there's all there's history behind that so we, we all know why that has come about and I'm not trying to say that it should be anything other than what it is but the the good friday agreement is at the core of what's a really unique constitutional situation i think then when it becomes more difficult is we work out well how do you how do you align this how do we know that a majority in the north and a majority in the south want unification Um, when will they be asked? How will they be asked? Will they be asked at the same time? What will they be told before they are asked? And that's where working out what the agreement means um, gets a lot trickier because people weren't thinking about it in that level of detail, um, understandably, and not a criticism when they were writing the agreement. Um, And, you know, there will be sort of arguments and disagreements over what the good friday agreement means on those questions
0: and you know great points there and linking in really to 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 that and linking back to an earlier point as well you know the sense that we're heading into essentially referendums on the island at, at some point on this seems to be um a significant point oddly sort of banal point, but significant in that how you frame that. In other words, that we're probably heading at some point into campaigns around referendums with different sides and all of that. And you've done a a tremendous amount of thinking really on this uh, component of, you know, constitutional change. And I wonder what lessons from past referendum processes, particularly in Ireland, there might be for heading into, you know, a referendum like this in, in the context that you have outlined?
1: Yeah, so obviously there's, in, in Northern Ireland, there's the referendum vote in 1998. Um, in the South, the Republic, um, a referendum is needed to amend the constitution. and um, There's been, uh, I think, 30 referendums passed amending the constitution. So there's quite a lot of experience of referendum campaigns And I think the biggest thing for me that would have come out over the last 20 years is that people want to know what they're voting on. Um, They want it to be explained to them. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody ultimately absolutely understands everything. Um, But if it's unclear what the referendum is going to do, if it's easy for people to make arguments, you know, that if you vote for this, it might be A or it might be B and uh, B is very scary... Um, or even just the uncertainty as to whether it's going to be A or B, then people get nervous. Uh, So the experience south of the border is, yeah, people want to know what they're voting on. And
0: if they don't, referendums are unlikely to pass. And I suppose fascinating implications of that as well in terms of the level of detail that um, is gone into in any set of proposals too around you know, the the change option, or actually the the option of remaining in the union as well? Will, will that be a status quo proposal, or will it require or suggest changes too? So, really interesting. They, just to tease that out a bit further too, in terms of process issues, I suppose, you know, constitutional law professors, people working in this area, could probably, you know, lock themselves in a room or a Teams meeting or a virtual conversation, and could draft constitutional amendments or could probably draft their own constitution. I'm sure a few people maybe have already. Um, and there you go, you've got a new constitution or you've got an amended constitution. But suppose what, what significance do you attach to the process for arriving at proposals? You know, So there's the substantive proposals that may emerge themselves on either side of this constitutional debate. But you know, what's the significance of the process for arriving at those proposals? Um,
1: yeah, so I think... Um, Another lesson from referendum debates in the South is that open and reasonably lengthy processes are better. Um, So where there's been bad experiences of, you know, a referendum suddenly sprung um, and the bare minimum of 28 days is given for a referendum campaign and that contributes to a feeling of people not knowing what it's about. Um, So I think processes, yeah, need to be as open um, as possible I think sometimes in debates around this issue um, people can lose sight of yeah sort of some core features of the process so let me talk a little bit about that and this is me giving my interpretation of what the agreement means yeah. um, but ultimately there are sort of what the political scientists would call two veto players so there's Two um, people, two groups of people who can say no to unification—a majority in the north or a majority in the south—and uh, they're each equally entitled to say no. Um, no, nobody else holds a veto. Um, so then the question is, what are well, what are they going to decide—the people in Northern Ireland and the people in the south—and that is necessarily implicitly or explicitly a a proposition from the Irish government, okay? The Irish government is the entity that would have control, would be the sovereign government ultimately, if both sides said yes. Um, So it's the Irish government that ultimately has to think about what it would like a united Ireland to look like um, so that it can tell people about that to the level of detail that it thinks is appropriate before it asks them to vote on it. And if people are unhappy that they're not getting accurate information or they're not being told what's the, what's going to happen if they vote yes, um, it's the Irish government that they would rightly be angry with. And the Irish government, this is probably the important point because... It's nice always to talk in terms of agreement and negotiation. The Irish government doesn't have to agree its proposal with anyone. It can put forward whatever proposal it wants uh, to put forward. The only people who can veto it are the referendum electorates on either side of the border. But the Irish government would be as strongly advised as possible to be as open and consultative and encompassing of as wide a range of viewpoints as possible in coming up with that proposal, because we'll assume the Irish government will want the referendums to pass and it will want to produce a proposal that has the maximum likelihood of acceptance from people who vote in the referendums, including from people... Who may have voted against it, um, and so the Irish government should be as open as possible and design processes that are as open as possible to help it formulate its proposal. But ultimately, it's the Irish government that has the decision to put forward that proposal at whatever level of
0: detail it thinks is appropriate. And that's the level of details. Maybe something else we can talk about a little later. Fantastic explanation of uh, the the context, which I suppose raises a, an, a you know an additional point. It, you know, in some of the conversations around this, people frame it in terms of occasionally as a sort of agreed or negotiated um, uh, way forward. And I just wonder about just the, the realism of that before a referendum. So sometimes you, the, the implication is least implied that, for example, unionists might sit down prior to a referendum and negotiate um, a way forward. Whether that's with the Irish government or wh- whoever, but I suppose one of the challenges around that is that for for political unionism in particular is that almost accepting the outcome prior to any referendum taking place and how that dimension is navigated. In other words, you know, particularly political unionism will we'll go into any referendum hoping to win it. You know, not contemplating. Uh, what would be perceived as as losing it? So that raises intriguing questions about what happens before these referendums happen, what might happen afterwards, uh, and how you navigate that, where people simply will not engage in dialogue prior to a referendum happening in Northern Ireland, particularly. I um, think yeah, no,
1: I think that's absolutely yeah. right, and the, yeah. the unionists yeah. who are you know prepared even to talk a little bit about this possibility. That's what they say and and they're they're absolutely right to say that. If you are I'm not a a unionist um, but if you are it's a a deep-seated part of your national identity. Um, You will not want a referendum to pass. That is a fully legitimate uh, political position to hold. Um, The obvious thing to do is not to you know, in some way, legitimize or like almost accept by engaging the proposal that is to which you strongly object, uh, for reasons that that I don't share, but which that, which I understand. Um, so, um, political unionism uh, almost couldn't. It would be really, it would be strategically foolish of them to engage in that debate. Um, beforehand so what what follows from this then Yeah, is uh, there's a nuance which I'll try to come back to but um, that it's when people talk about it being an agreed Ireland um, it, it won't in an important sense be an agreed Ireland it's not going to be a negotiation like the Good Friday Agreement negotiations where you get agreement from both sides of the political community in Northern Ireland there's another, as you well know, and probably many, I'm sure most of the listeners to the podcast know, the threshold criterion for holding a referendum in Northern Ireland is that the Secretary of State must call one if it appears likely to them that a majority would vote in favour, basically. It's a slight paraphrase. And loads of debate about what precisely that means. But an effect of that is that any majority in the North for unification is likely to be quite narrow. Um, So if that that criterion is applied in good faith, as you'd expect by the Secretary of State, and that as soon as it appears likely that a majority, however slim, would vote in favour Um, There's a possibility for some movement during a campaign. Campaigns are important um, and there are people there who are persuadable. But many people aren't persuadable on both sides of the debate and that's perfectly fine. It's a deep-seated issue on identity. It's not for many people. It's not something you should be easily persuaded out of. So that suggests that the majority is likely to be quite narrow. And that means there's likely to be, uh, if unification is passed, you know, a substantial number of people who have voted against what's about to happen to them in a very fundamental way. It's not losing on sort of one referendum issue that you might, you know, come back. And we've seen different referendums held in Ireland twice on you know, European Union referendums and divorce and things like that. So that's going to be an issue. Um, and that's something that we can't shy away from. I think the other question, the new ones that I want to get back to is there is sort of different time periods. So the referendums themselves will not bring about unification. It needs to be implemented, um, on how I read the agreement, based on legislation at Westminster and legislation in the Aeroctis. Legislation that, as states, they are obliged in international law to secure the passage of. Um, But there's definitely going to be time and there are going to be things that have to be worked out after the referendums. I don't think anybody thinks that everything could be agreed before the referendums or everything could be determined before the referendums. So there's going to be a period of time and I think a question that, I wonder what what you think of on this one, is the extent to which political unionism would be willing to engage uh, if a referendum were lost before there is any transfer of sovereignty from London to Dublin, so would the um my suspicion for the same reasons, but perhaps i'm I'm wrong on this is that many political unionists would still not want to engage with the possibility of unification even after referendums were passed um I think after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed up to by Um, political unionism or the Ulster Unionist Party anyway in 1998 uh, they were still argued against some of its provisions these provisions in fact around the uh, simple majority vote um, in favour of unification they didn't accept those in the House of Commons they argued against it, now it was always going to happen, the Labour Party had a huge majority so nothing was going to turn on it Um, But I think that political unionism, and I think for sound tactical reasons at at least, might continue to not engage in that sort of interval period uh, between referendums being passed, if that's what happens, and unification occurring. And if I'm right on that, um, this I'm far from sure of, Um, I think that has a lot of implications for how we think about the processes before the votes as well. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Well, well, obviously, I'm an entirely neutral and impartial host of the podcast here in terms of these discussions, but you you raise, uh, you know, fantastic points. And I suppose the lesson from the agreement is that if you think when you... uh, Win a referendum, or you agree a text that that's the end of the story. You would be very foolish indeed. That all the the conflicts that were there will map onto the process of implementation. And as you know, you're absolutely right. You know that the Westminster dimension of that is going to be intriguing, um, in terms of what is done politically. I suppose the question would be in terms of political unionism not being a monolith either. So it will be interesting to see um, the debates that go on uh, there. But, you know, obviously the the record speaks for itself in terms of the main unionist parties and how they've approached those processes even after there's been a referendum or there's been a text uh, adopted. So it would certainly be uh, well-wise to... To see this as a, in the, in the cliche, you know, a process and not an event, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's going to have to be thought forward. I suppose one of the questions then that links into that is, so if a proposal is made by the Irish government, as you've already outlined, uh, you've again done a lot of thinking around the question of a constitutional model and what that might involve. And, you know, the debate around the continuity of the Northern Ireland institutions, devolution, the sort of model that might emerge in a united Ireland. And so you've written about the challenges of the devolved model operating in that context. Uh, allowing the devolved institutions to, quote, to function for a trial period in any unified state may provide the best chance of consensus emerging on the future model of governance for a united Ireland in a a recent piece in the Irish Times. What constitutional model would... uh, This might be an unfair question, actually. Would you like to see proposed? Um, Yeah, I'll
1: I'll, I'll try to answer anyway. All all questions are fair questions. Um, So... I think that, so. The, we spoke earlier about the idea that um, any referendum, if passed in the north, is likely to be passed by a relatively small uh, minor majority. Um, and what the again the political scientists uh, the phrase they use is losers' consent. So will people um, uh, accept the result even though they disagree with it. And a lot of that can be around the process and if people feel it was a fair process and so on. That's really important. Um, but another aspect then is how much do things change? So I think the strongest argument for the continuation of the uh, devolved institutions that's dormant uh, if unification were to occur is that basically it minimizes the change on the ground at a time when a lot of change is taking at the sort of high constitu- taking place at the high constitutional level. Um, and that's probably good for stability. It's less the people who feel that they are losing out from this. Um, it may make it feel correctly that they are losing less, and less is changing on the ground. Um, but what I wrote about in the Irish Times a few weeks ago before Christmas, um was that I think the continuation of the devolved model uh, for Northern Ireland in the context of a united Ireland, which is much smaller than the United Kingdom, poses a lot of really serious challenges for national level governance in Ireland. Um, and uh, happy to talk about that more or not, as, as you think is helpful on the podcast. Um, but I think... Overall, that probably outweighs the, um, you know, the sort of the stability reasons for not changing, uh, the stability reasons for keeping the devolved institutions in place. Um, So ultimately, what I suggested in, in that article, which is not far from perfect solution, is that the devolved institutions would continue in place for a time to see if they might work. Um, but that they should be reviewed relatively early after unification takes place to see if it's working. Um, And I think, like putting that in slightly less technical and legal terms, uh, maybe the question is whether Northern Ireland works as a political entity. Um, And I think it probably hasn't worked within the United Kingdom. Um. maybe it will be saved so noises on the protocol seem more optimistic at the moment and maybe that could diminish some of the harsher effects of Brexit and give it a bit of stability and Northern Ireland could have the best of both worlds and that it would start to work politically better uh, but at the moment the Assembly suspended for so long in effect um, it's hard to say that it works as a political entity and then the question is well if it doesn't work as a political entity within the UK what would be different that would make it work as a political entity in a united Ireland and you might say well the constitutional question is off the agenda so that as a sort of polarizing divide within the society in Northern Ireland might be gone Um, but my feeling, and this is, there are some things that we've talked about where I have expertise. This is not an area where I have expertise. I'm just an interested citizen looking at what's happening. Um, my feeling is that uh, there's more of a risk that the sort of patterns of political division um, behavior around that political division that for understood. political division for important reasons because people have fundamentally different views about their future Uh, but those patterns of behaviour might persist even after the constitutional question was resolved and that might not be good for Northern Ireland and would probably make governance of the state as a whole quite difficult because Northern Ireland would be a very significant part of a united Ireland in a way that in population terms and wealth terms etc it's not a significant part of the United Kingdom. Uh, obviously, in constitutional terms, it's significant. I don't want to diminish its status yeah. in any way like that, but it's going to
0: count for a lot more in the United Ireland if that comes about. One of the f- fascinating things, I, th- I think we're a, a good 40 minutes into this uh, a podcast, and it's it's s- striking to me that thus far, taking the concept of loser's consent, the, the violence question hasn't arisen. And the reason I say that is because been like yourself you've done a range of events where often it's it's the first question that sometimes comes in 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 a discussion and like this so um not in any sense of avoiding it but i'm just fascinated you know as to your view 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 on that losers consent we're talking here and we've spoken earlier about the possibility of political unionism you know Continuing perhaps to to, to 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 set out the discussion afterwards, but I, I suppose we we can't avoid the question in Northern Ireland that there that there's a risk of groups here, um, you know, fighting. Their, let's let's name it for what it is. You know, the of violence, of 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 resistance to that, um, and I just wonder what your thoughts on that were, both in terms of how that might. Be, I'm not sure mitigated is the best way of putting it but in terms of how the process is managed um, how you avoid that dimension of uh, armed conflict let's name it uh, post any referendum for United Ireland um, Yes, this is obviously a really difficult question and I think
1: maybe it's um, it, it comes quicker to the mind of people who've lived in Northern Ireland and lived through armed conflict and experienced it, uh, which I didn't. I I grew up in Dublin. Um, But I think, yeah, so on the one hand, um, there will be, I think, without a doubt, um, there will be some people uh, in Northern Ireland, if referendums are passed, carrying Irish unification would be so opposed to it and have perhaps a propensity to violence already that they would want to violently resist Um, and I think it's the that needs to be prepared for as a security threat and the security forces of a new state would have to be able to be prepared to deal with that Um, in terms of planning and preparation I think it's Uh, to try to make that group as small as possible and how do you do that well by having a process which even if many political unionists don't want to participate in at least they can see well there wasn't they weren't excluded from the process they made a choice not to participate which is uh, understandable and needs to be respected but they weren't shut out from any process and i think that their concerns um about a new state are taken seriously. Um, And I think on that, there's a lot of um, lack of uh, sensitivity in the South, I think, um, about uh, the sort of symbolic things that um, could be offensive to Northern Unionists. Um, So Irish as the... Irish as the national language, Irish language titles for the main offices of state, Taoiseach, Taunishtha, etc. The preamble of the constitution is clearly written in a way that identifies the British as former imperial oppressors. But we need to have a new account, I think, of what this new state is about and what the people in that state are about that is much more accepting of diversity within those people. Um, The flag of green, white and orange, that's constitutionally required, but it's clearly a flag that does not gain any allegiance or sympathy from the unionist community. Um, uh, But I find in the South and you see that, uh, in opinion polls, I did a totally unscientific poll of students in constitutional law classes, represented some of these issues to them, and they were majority from the South and they were strongly in favour of unification, but strongly opposed to making changes on any of these symbolic issues. So there's a huge attachment in the South to these sort of symbolic features of the Irish state. Um, and I think uh, that people in the South should be much more prepared. A compromise on those than appears to be the case at the moment uh, and much more try to meet the people who are opposed to unification halfway and say like is there a way in which we can maybe it's back to a shared island again but is there a way in which we can make this feel like a shared space that even though you weren't participating in the process leading up to the referendums we were thinking about what your concerns might be we were thinking about ways in which it could be less alienating for you I um, have a desire to get opinion pollsters to ask a question uh, which could be asked on, on both sides of the border, but uh, should post boxes yeah. be painted green if <laughs> referendum <laughs> unifications are passed? Uh, yeah. Just to pick up something which is purely symbolic, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. has no practical importance, but do people yeah. strongly feel that they should be painted green? Yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah. those are the sorts of things I'm thinking
0: about. I suppose that that's a brilliant way of of leading into perhaps the next, the final few questions, really, about the new component of this. What's really interesting about some of the discussion is how quickly people insert new into the discussion, whether that's a new Ireland or new United Ireland or even a new constitution. And I suppose thinking about your own work in constitutional law, uh, it's been notable that people have suggested uh, a new constitution. Uh, it's been raised. Just w- what is your view? Should a uh, United Ireland have a new constitution? Um, I think
1: yes, but not before it's created. Um, so I think coming up with a new constitution is difficult. Um, I think and managing a unification of two territories is extremely difficult. And attempting to do the two things at the same time, I think, is close to impossible. Uh, we saw how the Chilean constitutional uh, creation Exper- not experiment, it was a genuine attempt with lots of good-meaning people, failed um, because they failed to take account of what public opinion really was. I think managing unification and a new constitution at the same time would be too much. Um, but I think after, if referendums are passed and a united Ireland comes about, uh, I think re- within a relatively short number of years after a united Ireland comes about, Uh, There should be a constitutional convention at that point. Nobody would have any reason not to participate in it, um, in which we genuinely tried to plan out a new Ireland. Um, And that would be an appropriate use of the word new. Um, Interestingly, so like constitutional scholars will show that when one constitution is replaced with another, usually very little changes. Um, So there's a strong tendency for things to be carried over now, but still at the same time, I think there is something important symbolically about a re-foundation of the state. um, And it does, it would require at least decisions to be made about everything, whether it
0: should carry over or not. Excellent points there. And just following on again from... That in terms of new, I think again one of the intriguing dimensions of this is that there'll be a pro union side and a pro constitutional change in that Ireland side, and the term new Ireland in that context then raises a distinctive question too about what versions of constitutional change or United Ireland might emerge, what that might mean, and I suppose it there seems to be a continuum in this discussion that. Really, as the detail is getting more and more into detail may emerge more clearly between continuity and transformative options because, you know, neither side on this referendum is a monolith, the diversity of views. I suppose what challenge, I suppose what challenge this presents for any side in that debate, but what challenge does that present for those, for example, advocating constitutional change, managing that really? Um, managing the 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 diversity of opinion or the yeah I just in a sense if you think of uh, in terms of as you've you know pointed out very well here we're essentially talking about referendums or going into a referendum where um, people will have quite divergent views <laughs> about what the future should be even who may notionally agree on the overall objective I just wonder what are the challenges in that
1: um, yeah so I think if, like one of the Answers to the earliest questions was people want to yeah. know what they're voting on. Um, yeah. um, my view of the, the ways of doing this is that at least the, the constitutional structure of any a United Ireland needs to be known before the referendums take place. Um, then I think if we go into it with various possibilities being on the table, I think that just creates far too great a risk of breakdown in negotiations after the referendums. Uh, So I think for those who are interested in constitutional change, uh, or those who are interested in unification, have to do a bit of, you know, working out among themselves and being prepared to live with what might not be their number one choice on various things, which is always the case, like, so like the successful Irish referendums and the ones that are held out as examples of good process were probably the abortion one in twenty eighteen um, the same-sex marriage referendum in twenty fifteen. But there were wide differences within the NGOs who were pushing for constitutional change before that, those referendums and ultimately they have to like they helped to shape the proposal, um, but they ultimately had to coalesce in supporting one thing. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's, that's a sort of a, a discipline on our thought process. That's what would be different from Brexit. We wouldn't be saying, yes, unification would be good. Now go off and negotiate it. At least there would be people could support it or oppose it with a sense of what it would actually be like. Um,
0: but getting to that uh, is not going to be easy. You'll be delighted to hear that this is the uh, final question. It's been fantastic conversation great to discuss with you and, and again maybe slightly unfair and perhaps we shouldn't as academic lawyers in a sense sort of try to predict things but why not? If we were, we were sitting down today in 2030 and we were doing this podcast and the reason I say 2030 is because it's intriguing to see the way the decade has become a sort of informal framing for uh, aspects of the conversation um, given what we know now what do you think might have changed by 2030? If anything, I don't know. So,
1: I, I think there is a possibility that um, the air may go out of this, that North and Ireland, Pol- the post Brexit upheaval will settle down, um, things will stabilise, and increase in support for unification and opinion polls will not continue. I think I'm not a, yeah. I don't have the expertise, particularly. I think that's less likely. I think what's more likely is that um, support for unification will increase. Um, And I think where we will be is that the the discussion about it will have become um, sort of more reality-based. I don't mean losing the aspirations that people have. So people, and I think one of the reasons people talk about New Ireland is because people recognise a lot that is wrong. Uh, with the state and with the state on each side of the border as things stand. So like, there's an optimism for change there. So when I say reality-based, I don't mean losing sight of the aspirations and the idealisms, um, but that there will be a lot more information. People will know how things work. Proposals will be much more worked out. Um, So ultimately, the people, if unification referendums do come around, and I think at this point I'd say it's hard... It's difficult to imagine that they wouldn't have happened by 2040, whether it would happen as early as 2030. I'm not sure, but I think uh, 2030 to 2040 may be the critical decade. That by that point, at least people can make an informed decision and we can you know, show the world that there is a way of thinking through complicated, you know, constitutional questions that go to the core of people's identity where they disagree profoundly. Uh, but there's a way of thinking them through providing people with information and allowing them to make the decision. For many people, they don't need the information because it's such a deep seated identity issue. And that's fine on both sides of the debate. But if the thing happens, the detail is suddenly going to be very important. And I think we might be able to show a way in which that can be worked out. So that's a, an optimistic model
0: for the world, whatever the outcome. <laughs> So, uh, in a sense, asking the question, you know, and allowing people to know what they're, you know, what the answer means. So thank you, Oren, for participating in the series. Um, It's been fantastic to discuss these questions in detail with you. I want to commend you for really the extensive thought and work you've been doing on, on this issue to try and think through in great detail what this all means. I think that's incredibly valuable work and I just want to wish you well with that in the future. I very much hope that we can continue uh, this uh, conversation and just to, to thank you again. Thank you.